Okay, Crystal wants to know. Get the microphone. Here we go. Now that we're recording. Is there other examples of the apostles rebuking Jesus that are just... Uh, there's a couple. Um, there's a couple. So Peter... Um, Peter um, corrects Jesus. I'm trying to think. Is it Luke 9? Let me see. Um, no, it's not in Luke 9. It's the parallel account in... Hold on. Um, give me a moment. 9.22. Matthew 16. In Matthew 16... Um, no, it's not Matthew. Where? Where is it? Nope. Okay. Hold on. Where does Peter say, far be it from you, and he says, get behind me, Satan? I thought that was Matthew 16. It's in Matthew I'm staring at me in the face, and I'm just not seeing it. Uh, oh, there it is. <laughs> okay. So, so in Matthew's parallel account, he includes a detail that Luke, it's not his purpose to focus on. And so after Peter confesses in Matthew 16 that Jesus is the Christ, in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then just like in Luke, Jesus goes from this confession to predict his own death. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God and the things of man. And then there's more subtle things. When Jesus tells them to cast their net over one side of the boat, Lord, we're the fishing experts here, but okay. Um, there's, there's a number of times where, where they don't, I think it's the only time they flat out rebuke Jesus. And even in our text today, they weren't rebuking Jesus. He was correcting them. He's correcting them all the time and telling them how you, know, you little faith. I mean, he's constantly challenging them. But can you think of other examples of the disciples correcting or rebuking Jesus? This is the big one that jumps to my mind. Anyone got any other examples? Yes! Peter again keeps putting his foot in his mouth. Far be it from you that you wash my feet, O Lord. If you, I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then my whole body as well. No, Peter, you're already clean. You see your feet cleaned. So yes, when Jesus tried to wash Peter's feet, Peter again knew better. John the Baptist didn't want to baptize Jesus. You, should you be, shouldn't you be baptizing me, Lord? No, nevertheless, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. Um, those are the examples I can think of, Crystal. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts from this morning and childlike faith? That distinction between childlike faith and childish faith makes sense? Because that's, I, I think, if you heard me sort of hating the sentimentality, it's only that if you just sort of focus on, well, if you forget these are babies and actually think they're kids, and then you sort of pick, you go in that direction, you run too far, and you pour some sugar and, and frosting on it, what you end up with is sort of, you know, 
this is easy and it's simple and these kids could be Christians. And so being a Christian can't be hard and it can't be difficult and the demands of the gospel can't be formidable because after all, look at these kids. And God, you need to be like a child to become a Christian. Yeah, you do need to become like a child to become a Christian. And that's part of what I was trying to get at with that. So it was an attempt to sort of establish that Jesus can say what he said here and everything he said previously about loving your mother and father, hating your mother and father, and brothers and sons and daughters, and following him. Um, and I think it also helps resolve some of the tension. You need to be willing to do that. The child's unable to do the thing. But the child's willing to try. And, and, and ultimately, as Christians, we, we can't do that. I don't have it within me to do those things. But I can come again and again and again to my father and say, Dad, if you'll help, I, I'll, I want to do that. Help. You know, um, and that's how sort of we move forward. So, okay, that was just me sort of making that point again. Thoughts, anything? Or I'll just keep talking. Yes. You kind of touched on it just a little bit on the innocence of children. Uh, oh, we're going there. I know. <laughs> okay, let's deal with that then. Fine, I'm ready for it, I think. Okay, I'm going to take a different seating, but I'll sit over here. Okay, the big question, are children innocent? No, if they were, they couldn't die. Only sinners die. Children are sinful. Unborn children are sinful. They couldn't die otherwise. Go read Romans 5, 12. For by sin, death came to all men for, um, yeah, Romans 5, 12. Let me read that. I thought I could quote it. Um, There's the one man sin and came into the world and sinned through death, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the proof that you're a sinner is that you can die. The proof that a child is a sinner is that they can die, sadly. Yet, within that scope of being a sinner, God does, go to Deuteronomy 1, recognize different levels of moral culpability. So infants, in utero children, are sinners. They are. Primarily through Adam, but they're sinners nonetheless. Yet... There's at least two passages I know of where God singles out young children with a special compassion precisely because of a diminished, not non-existent, but diminished moral culpability. So in Deuteronomy 1, um, let me get there. I want to say, where is it? There it is, 39. Okay. 38. Well, actually, start back at 34, you get the context. The Lord, so what Moses is doing is he's recounting the law and the covenant the people entered into with God before they go in to take possession of the land. So they're getting a history of God's faithfulness and their failure. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the land, the good lands that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed God. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account, and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for you, your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, shall go in there. Um, and I don't think he's denying that little children have no knowledge whatsoever of right and wrong. I mean, good grief. I, I've caught my, my newborn look the other way. And, you know, but here's the point. They had no part in this rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. 
They had no part, they didn't know what was going on. And even then, their, their comprehension of the extent and the depth and the breadth of rebellion is limited. I mean, a newborn or a young child can know mommy doesn't want it. They, can, they know how to rebel. They know how to say no. But they don't fully grasp the depths of it. And so there's a recognition of a lessened culpability. These kids can go into the land. Go to the end of Jonah. Um, go to the end of Jonah. Another interesting passage about God's special compassion for young children and their helplessness. Let me get to Jonah. Okay. So if you remember at the end of Jonah, um, God is talking to a very angry prophet who's angry because God did not destroy Nineveh. And so to teach him a lesson, God makes this Jonah gets Jonah gets a seat on the hillside, bowl of popcorn. He's ready for the fire and brimstone and the judgment. And God causes this big leafy plant to grow up, gourd over him, and give him shade. And then partway through the day, a worm eats the plant, and he's not got shade. And he throws a little pity party and a little temper tantrum. And uh, verse eight of chapter four. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Oh, the drama. But God said to Jonah, do you, well, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do very well to be angry, enough angry even to die. I mean, this, yeah, this is a script that my kids have had. Um, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. And so again, a special mercy, a special compassion for children. So the balancing act is, is this candy. Children deserve and can receive the penalty of sin, that they die. That's, that's right there, part of the penalty. So they are not innocent. They are not sinless. And if they were, they would be a large contingent of people in heaven with no savior, with no need of a cross, with an inherent righteousness that was their own, that they could boast in. And so on the one hand, we can't, we can't go there and say children are innocent which means then that we can't argue with God or plead with God based on justice for what he does with them. God could righteously send all infants to hell along with the rest of the human race. And there's plenty of judgment where infants aren't spared. The flood didn't spare infants. The conquest of Jericho didn't spare infants. There are times where infants do receive the full penalty of the curse and of sin and, and judgment. And yet, and yet, we see again and again hints um, signs of God's special heart and mercy for children, which leads me to conclude what happens to very young children who die. I don't know. Um, I hope. I think there's plenty of reason to hope. And, and we're just doing a brief sample, and there's more texts that suggest this. I, my reading of the Bible is less than 100% conclusive, but other good men who read the same stuff think it is. So my old pastor, John MacArthur, wrote a book, Safe in the Arms of God, looking at the same data you, like another example is David's grief over Absalom, his apostate, rebellious son. David's grief over the little child who died after, um, 
after uh, Nathan came and confronted him, are radically different. And, and one of the suggestions is because he knows Absalom's going to hell. <laughs> and yet he says of the child um, who's born to, the child's not even named, the child that's born to him and, and uh, Bathsheba, uh, I cannot go to him, but I, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Now, that just might mean the place of death, Sheol, but it might be more. Um, you've got Job wishing that he uh, was a miscarriage. Job. Oh, Job's got some really interesting comments. <laughs> no, but what he's saying is, wish that I never came into this world. This world's so ugly and painful. I wish I'd never seen it. Which would seem odd if Job thought kids who died in the womb went to hell. But again, that's not what Job's point is. All I have to say, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pointers that suggest God may have special mercy on infants. I'm just saying if he does, it's mercy, it's not justice. And so we need to recognize it's grace, which means we have to recognize God could righteously, justly, in a holy way, without us having any complaint to raise, cast every single one of them and all of us into hell. That's the scary part. But if we can't agree with that, then it's not grace, it's, it's justice. And so I think there's a lot of reason to hope a lot of reason to hope that God has grace on little children. Um, but it's grace. It's not justice. So anyone want to run with, run with that or any further thoughts on that? I figured we might go here this morning. So, Okay. Other questions? We've got five minutes. We've got time for one good one here. Oh, Bryce. So you were talking about the necessity of a childlike faith, and I was just wondering, uh, you have the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 rebuking a bunch of believers for being immature in the faith, and he yes. says specifically, you need milk, not solid food. Right. So I guess my thought is, would that be an example of a childish faith, seeing yeah. as we always went along for the spiritual milk, but then again, he says, you need milk, not solid food. Right. And, you know... Right, right. No, 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 absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. That the childish, the childlike faith is humble. It's dependent. It's, it's not independent. It's if dad says so, okay. It's looking to my father and not the neighbor's dad, you know, not the Baals and the Ashtras. It's looking to my dad. That's everything with childlike faith. Childish faith, I don't need to study the Bible because I'm a child, is gets rebuked again and again and again and again, in Hebrews 5 in particular. Um, even though you ought to be teachers by now, you need someone else to teach you the basic principles of God. You, you can't handle solid food. It's for the mature. You need milk. You're, you're babies. And then that's not a good thing. It's not like, well, that's what we're supposed to be. No, we're supposed to grow in maturity and grow in understanding. We're supposed to, we're supposed to study God's word and understand it better. But we never leave the childlike position of dependence and reliance and humility. We, we never, that, that's the key to saying, that's what I'm trying to get at between childish and childlike. Um, that, that's the, the distinction I'm trying to make precisely. Hebrews 5 is a great, great passage. In fact, go, let's go there. Hebrews 5. We'll close on this. Because um, if you want to mature and grow in the faith, Hebrews 5 gives you positively and negatively what the characteristics of Christian maturity are and how it happens. So the author of Hebrews has been teaching on the priesthood of Melchizedek 
from Genesis 11. Or 10. 10 or 11? No, it's not either of those. It's like 15. Anyway, it is written somewhere. Um, yeah, no, it's after 12. You're quite right. Um, the author of Hebrews introduces a quotation saying it is written somewhere. So I'm just going to punt to that one. Um, and he's talking about Melchizedek, and he pauses talking about Melchizedek and warns his readers in verse 11 of chapter 5. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So your first symptom or sign of immaturity is dull of hearing. And what he's basically saying is you don't have an attention span. You know, and it's gonna be, so a sign of an immature Christian is you could listen to sports stats on the radio for hours, you days off and get distracted in the sermon or reading your Bible. Okay, that's just a sign of weakness. It's a sign of immaturity. He wants to talk about Melchizedek, and he pretty much knows at this point they need a break. They need an intermission. They need a pause. And so he says, he's become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, so there's the expectation of growth, that within a couple of years of becoming a Christian, you can teach, maybe not at the sermonic level, maybe not the seminary level, but you, know, you could teach some kids you know, in Awana. You could... You could do children's Sunday school. Fathers, you could teach your children and your wives. Mothers, you could teach your children. I mean, the assumption is that within short order, that's going to happen. You ought, so there's a sign of maturity. Are you able to explain God's word to anyone? Do you do that to anyone? You know, um, in any capacity, um, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So there's your next sign of weakness and maturity. Immaturity lacks skill in the word. Those who are more mature have skill with the word. Um, so how familiar are you with your Bible? How competent do you feel with it? Um, just use practical examples. If, if you had somebody struggling with sorrow and depression... Would you have any place to go to? If they're dealing with anger, would you be able to take... How skillful are you in the Bible in its use in everyday life? Practically. Could you take your kid, your husband, could you take your friend, could you take your, your, your mother or father, show them something in God's word to encourage them that related to what they're dealing with in life? How skilled are you in the word of God? Solid food is for the mature. And then here's how you fully get there. I love this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How, how do you get more and more mature and more and more familiar with the word? You are constantly holding everything up in life to God's word and trying to sort out the good from the bad. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? What do we make of this? Text, text, text. Where, what biblical passages would help me think whether this is good or bad? What do I make of this new law? What do I make of this new thing? This happened, I'm watching the news. What do I make of that? And you're more and more and more and more holding all of life through the greatest scripture. That's how you grow in skill with the word. That's how you grow in discernment. And that's how you grow in maturity. And so absolutely, a Christianity that's sort of, don't worry about that, I just me and Jesus, yay, is precisely the type of thing that gets rebuked here. Absolutely. It's childish faith, not childlike faith. If you've ever heard someone say, no creed but Christ, you need to understand that itself is a creed, just a woefully insufficient one. And I'll say that again, no creed but Christ is a creed. It's a slogan, it's a doctrinal statement, it's just an insufficient one. Um, God gave us a whole book that he wants us and expects us to be growing in our familiarity with. We are at time. I'll close in prayer, we'll go. Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for your goodness. 
And I thank you for your word that instructs us, um, guides us like a lamp to our feet. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, we'd be more faithful, that we would adopt a childlike reliance on you, that we would never grow past or beyond that, and that we would know you more and more as our loving, good, heavenly Father who gives us good gifts and never rocks or scorpions. Help us to trust and look to you only. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, I gotta say one more thing. This is awesome Tim Keller quote. Here we go. Oh, ch- child. Only a child dares wake a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Only, 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 only the child of the king dares wake his father in the middle of the night for a glass of water. That's the type of access we have. You know, you think in the, in the castle, the court, what person would dare wake the king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water? His kid. And that is the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Anyway, God's speed, God bless, good day.